Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Hello. This upcoming week, we're going to be really focusing on mental health, specifically topics about suicide, about relationships, and leaving relationships when they're unhealthy as well as the path to spirituality. The guest that I will be having on Wednesday is Christina Lagdameo. We met when I was living on Kauai, and she has a fascinating story. She's the co-founder of True Self Yoga in Washington, and she was inspired to start the studio because her husband's cousin actually committed suicide. And he was someone that I met when we were living on island. And I just remember Trevor being so vivacious, so full of life and love and genuineness. And it was really sad to me because he was very young when he committed suicide. At the time when I met him, I believe that he was around the age of 20. I hope that when you tune in this week, you will be inspired to explore a bit more of your own mental and emotional wellness, that if you need help and support, you go out and seek it, or that it becomes less taboo. It becomes a topic that you can talk about with the people in your life who you trust and care about, and that perhaps you also feel inspired to reach out to someone who may need help, who's been on your heart, who you think might be going through a bit of a hard time because I think for a lot of different reasons, we try to keep it to ourselves. We don't really reach out when we know someone might be going through something. And I hope that from today's story, you'll hear that I really did wish that more people reached out to me when they could tell that something was very off. Here we go. I have wanted to kill myself three times in my life. Once in high school, once in my mid-20s, once after I had my daughter. Our 1984 Toyota Warrior Winnebago was parked outside my friend Jen's house in Santa Cruz. We had driven there a few months after we decided to live on the road full-time in our RV so that we could visit with this friend who had been our first Airbnb guest when we were living on Kauai. She had known Wilder since she was an infant. One night at dinner, I was getting peas ready for Wilder and placing them on her silicone tray. She was playing in the portable high chair that was attached to the table. I said something, and my husband's response caused Jen to say, don't do that. That's not nice. He laughed it off. Our marriage was already a year past its expiration date, but we would keep pushing it for four more. The next night, Jen was hosting a dinner party. She was excited for us to meet her friends. But me, deep in my depression and unresolved from our argument the night before, wanted to hash things out with my husband. He was reluctant. I made him go outside. We sat on the curb outside her wooden fence, covered by lush overgrowth. The more I tried to save our marriage, the more I could feel him retreat. He didn't want to talk to me. He didn't have anything to say. I felt like I spent hours pleading with him to understand, and he couldn't. I think Wilder will be better off without me. Fine, if that's what you think. He left me on the curb, went back inside. Our daughter was sleeping. I went into the camper van. I sat on the bench in the interior of the RV. I felt paralyzed. I didn't want to go inside. I didn't want to be outside. I no longer wanted to be anywhere. I simply didn't want to exist. I searched in the cabinets above the bench. I needed to find a piece of paper. I needed to write a letter to my daughter to explain to her why I would no longer be around. I needed to tell her all the things I wasn't sure my husband would tell her about me, about my love for her, 
about how I wanted to disappear, about how I couldn't find a way out, about how I didn't know what else to do. At the age of 38, I wanted to die. In another year, I would be very close to trying. After a few paragraphs, I put down the pen and paper and went back inside. Jen would later say, all my friends were asking what was going on. I had no idea. That was a really messy time. Parked outside a health food store in Oregon, my husband took our daughter into the store. I sat in the driver's seat of the RV, feeling the density of the top cabin over me. I called Kimberly Ann Johnson. She'd worked on my pelvic floor before. She was a single mom. She specialized in working with women. I needed help, and I didn't know who else to ask since we weren't yet settled somewhere, so she was the closest person I knew to reach out to. I didn't know how to formulate the words about what I was feeling because I didn't know what I was feeling. The words tumbled out like I had a mouthful of marbles, but what I needed wasn't coming across. She listened. She offered insights. Yet when I hung up, I felt like I wasn't any closer to where I needed to be. It's hard to help someone who is slipping and sliding and still hasn't hit bottom yet. Recently, I was watching an episode of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, where Zoe's sister-in-law, an Asian-American new mom, is unknowingly going through postpartum depression, and I almost wanted to look away at the memory of my own experience. How long it took me to figure out that something was wrong. The nonsensical nature of it all. The knowing that you're a good mom and that you're doing all the things, and then wanting to simultaneously abandon your child. The feeling that you've lost everything you've known about yourself, as a human is feeding off your body. The fact that you are a smart, college-educated woman who's provided for yourself for over three decades, but that you can't use your intelligence to navigate your way out of emotions that just don't make sense. By the time we got to Austin, Texas, I was in a bad place. My daughter was about to turn two, and I didn't know if I'd make it to her birthday. I spent nights sitting outside my husband's door, we now slept in two separate bedrooms, wanting help, needing help, only to have him shut the door in my face. It had become exhausting to breathe. In the mornings, I got ready for work as my husband packed my daughter's lunch for the Spanish bilingual school she was now attending. He'd offer me food, but I didn't want what he was making. I had lost a lot of weight. On the mornings he was angry at me, he wouldn't make the coffee in the French press like he would do on the other mornings. I forced fake smiles at work. I tried to be productive. I was the breadwinner. I would put on Jenny Lawson's Furiously Happy as I drove down the 360 and listened as she tried to find humor in her chronic conditions, in depression and anxiety and losing people to mental illness. As a writer, I could not find the words to describe what I was going through, and she was the first person I'd ever heard describe depression in a way that I could wrap my heart around. The wanting to get out of it, the drowning even harder, the loneliness and isolation of people around you not understanding what you're going through. Recently, I went on a walk around the block with a man I'm now dating, and we started talking about addiction because I was listening to the book High Achiever for my book club. In talking to him, I realized why I do the things I do now, that his definition of addiction was markedly different than my own lived experience of having an eating disorder, of leading people in recovery groups, of seeing desperation firsthand, of palpably feeling despair, depression, anxiety, and worry. It's incredibly alienating to already be going through something hard, I told him, and then to have the closest people in your life not understand. I think that's what I'm hoping this podcast and my writing will do, that it'll give words for people to express what they're going through that they couldn't find on their own. Maybe then it'll help close the gap between someone suffering and the people who want to help them. 
Jenny Lawson calls depression an unfathomable disease, one that makes you want to murder yourself. How fucked up is that? She chirps in her elevated voice. Seriously, how fucked up is that? The night before my daughter's second birthday, with a party I had planned, I drove away from the house. I called my daughter's godmother, my dear friend Lisa. I want to end it. I want to die, I told her. She tried to talk me back. She had talked to me when I was parked in Idaho, too, when I said, I can't fucking do this anymore. I can't do this marriage. I hate him. When I got back home, I knocked on my husband's door. He still tried to ignore me. I can't do this anymore. This is it. I want to die. I won't be here in the morning. My husband got on the phone with a suicide hotline. We were lying side by side on my bed. He had a tear rolling out of his eye, which at the time I found very difficult to believe. Can you get through tonight? The operator asked, friendly. I guess. We hung up. My ex-husband's father is a doctor, and an intuitive one at that. He was one of the youngest people to ever graduate from medical school in New York when he first pursued his career. He's incredibly intelligent and doesn't often tell his clients that he uses intuition to guide his diagnoses. In the early days, after having my daughter, we drove up to see him in Northern California. I could tell something was off within me. I asked him for help. He did a cranial sacral session, gave me a few suggestions, but I still couldn't get what I needed. Now we were in Austin, Texas. My husband's father called him. There were years in their relationship when they didn't talk. How's Judy? His father asked. My husband launched into his default response. So good. We could be in the middle of an argument. My husband would answer the phone, and if someone asked how he was doing, that would be his refrain. So good. His father called back the next day. He asked the same question. How's Judy? He knew. This time, my husband walked outside into the backyard. She's not doing well. I know, his father said. She needs to see a doctor. Her brain chemistry has changed, and she needs to get on medication. I know her. She's going to want to do the holistic route, but that's not going to cut it. She needs to see a Western doctor who can prescribe medication. This is coming from a man who practices homeopathy and cranial sacral work in addition to his Western-based medicine practice. He was right. I had tried the things. I tried acupuncture. I tried talk therapy. I tried naturopathic remedies. Nothing was working. I asked my friends, Deirdre and Emmy, if they had a doctor who could prescribe medication. They recommended a phenomenal doctor who, after our first session, when I told her that I was having a hard time moving my body from depression and I couldn't find the fight to go on, she listened carefully, attentively. The last time I was on meds in my 20s, they were terrible, I told her. I was sleeping all the time. We'll get the right dosage for you, she said tenderly. Then she looked at me directly and said slowly, I'm going to help you, but this is going to take some time. I need you to understand something. And she made me look in her eyes. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you take that path, there is nothing more that I can do to help you, okay? I nodded, slowly, heart achingly. Everything was so heavy, and I couldn't find my way out. Six months later, I was feeling a lot better. Six months after that, we were preparing to move to Taiwan. I asked the Western doctor if it'd be okay to get off my meds. I asked the holistic doctors. Everyone said it'd be fine, that I was doing very well. My husband was concerned. I mean, what if you're international and things get bad again? What are you going to do? That shook my confidence, but I chose to move forward anyway. I now knew what bad could look like. I didn't want to get there again, so I put safeguards in place. I still stocked up on natural remedies. 
I made sure to have my therapist's phone numbers. I researched expat resources abroad. As our divorce became apparent, things started to get messy. My husband removed me from all social media accounts. Then one night went on Facebook and wrote a post about me, about us. The next morning, I received a text message from his employer. I had helped him get the job at the school where he was now teaching, and I had been helping her with marketing. Are you okay? If you need anything, please let me know. Am I okay? I was confused. Yeah, I texted back. Everything's fine. Why? Oh, because of what your husband posted online. What did he post online? Because he had removed me from social media, I wasn't able to find his post until later. As I read the multiple paragraphs, my heart dropped. We were still living together. I hadn't yet moved out. He said I had kidnapped our daughter, but she was at a play date. I texted him the night before when he had made this post to check if it'd be okay if she slept over at our friend's house. We had gotten into an argument. I had taken her to this play date. She was having a good time, and he said it was fine. He knew where they lived. He'd been up this mountain before. In the post, he wrote, Judy's mental health is unstable, that he only wished me well that he was excited to be done. Freedom, he ended the post. He forgot that he had added parents of the students he was now teaching as Facebook friends, that his employer was on there too. The parents saw the post, grew concerned, alerted the owner of the school. That's when she reached out to me. A few days later, I asked him to go with me to a therapist so that an objective person could rationalize what was happening. When she challenged him, challenged the veracity of the things he was saying out loud, the things he posted, he relented ever so slightly. After our session, we were standing outside the center. This was an organization that was specifically created in Taipei for expats because decades prior, young teens had accidentally murdered a friend when they didn't have the right mental and emotional health resources for foreigners in the country. I stood beside my husband. I cannot wait to be done with you, he said. I never want to have anything to do with you again. Things would still get worse, at which point my husband would tell me, if you ever try to take more than 50% custody of our daughter, I'm going to prove that you're mentally unstable. When he said those words, I realized that's exactly why so many people don't seek help, for fear of shame or stigma or retribution that comes with seeking help, with going to therapy, with talking about things that are shadows. When I mentioned this statement to the divorce coach I spoke with, to the legal counsel I saw in Taiwan, to the lawyer in California where we planned to move, they all said the same thing. He should try. That's going to look terribly on him. There is no court of law that would punish you for getting help for your postpartum depression. At eight months old, my daughter's pediatrician asked if I was doing okay. I wanted to cry. I wanted to say, no, I'm falling apart. Everything is falling apart. But I didn't. My milk supply was drying up, and I wanted to know why. He, with his decades of experience, with his white hair, with seeing thousands of babies, knew that, potentially, it was because of my mental and emotional state. My husband was in the room. I didn't feel safe to share. In future episodes, I'll talk about my marriage, my relationship, and how when you're raised without healthy boundaries, you can become predisposed to intimate relationships that are quote-unquote normal for you, but that are actually very unhealthy. For now, I'll simply say that I wish that people were more forthright, bolder, in pointing out when they could see that something was wrong. When I told my friends that I was getting divorced, many of them opened up to me. They said, yeah, I didn't think that was really the right fit. And I understand that when you're friends with someone, you want to respect their choices. But I think it's important that if you feel safe enough 
And if you can find the words to speak honestly and openly with the people in your life, if you are concerned, the way that one of my friends did when she saw me on video as she was talking to me from California and I was living in Taiwan. And she said, when you talk about your husband, your shoulders start to droop. You look like a woman abused. I wish the pediatrician had asked my husband to leave the room so I could have a moment to feel vulnerable enough to melt down and ask for help. But even if he had, I don't know if I was ready yet to face the hard truths. I don't know if I would have opened up. I knew I needed help. I didn't know how to get it. And I don't know if my need to save face would have prevented me from saying anything at all. I will always be forever grateful for my ex-husband's father for speaking up and encouraging me to seek someone who could prescribe medication so that I wouldn't have the stigma of having to be on medication weighing on my mind when I finally did decide to go that route. I hope that in listening to today's episode, you will feel braver, bolder to ask for the help that you need, to not have to wait a year or two or longer before you ask, to try and all your fumbling with words you don't yet have, to say, please, I'm going through a hard time. There is someone around you who knows. There's someone around you who wants to be there. There is someone who can help. And if you are that someone, I hope you'll speak up too. I found the help. You can as well. Please ask. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and know someone in your life who might also benefit from hearing this episode, please feel free to share it with them. Also, if you'd like to support our show, you can make a one-time donation at fucksavingface.com or you can make a recurring donation at patreon.com forward slash fucksavingface. That's fuck without the U. Subscribe today to stay tuned for all future episodes.